Okay, welcome back to Hints and Guesses, my podcast. This is Kent Dobson. This week, man, I want to return to my series, We've Lost the Plot. So this will be the fourth installment, We've Lost the Plot. And I want to talk about Holy Week, or the final week of Jesus' life. At least I want to talk a bit about it. It's very complex, and in actually most of the Gospels, it takes up a considerable amount of space, so it's not easy to summarize, and I'm I'm going to kind of take an overview of some things and, and dive deeper into others. I'm really interested in a very enigmatic, never-talked-about line right in the middle of Holy Week that Jesus says right after the so-called Last Supper, by the way, and um, has something to do with a sword. And yeah, I mean, I always find that, and I'm totally 100% guilty of this, we tend to um, praise, promote, and talk about passages and lines from ancient texts that confirm our bias or our theology or our way of thinking. And we don't often want to even wrestle, look at, or acknowledge that not everything in there confirms the way we look at the world. So I want to do a bit of that this week, since after all, every year this story comes back around again. Here it is, Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter. Why are we repeating this? Why are we repeating the drama year after year after year? It, it's, it must be something other than we want to remember. I, maybe on one level we want to remember something, and remembrance is uh, um, it is part of uh, being a human being and remembering our tradition or traditions. But why go through the drama of it all? And if you are a part of a church or or were a part of a church, you know that sort of the whole um, uh, way the church is even dressed up, especially in a mainline church. Um, or Catholic Church, changes during this time of year. So what's going on? Why are we repeating the drama year after year? And the problem with repeating something is that uh, we, we don't often hear with fresh ears what these stories are really talking about. And I want to try to do that today, at least in my own small way, make a contribution along these lines. So that's where I'm going. And you don't have to be religious or non-religious to get into this story. It is fascinating and rich and complex. Uh, before I do so, I want to thank those of you who are choosing to support this podcast. Last week I said, or whenever I released the last one, I said, hey, you can now support this podcast directly by becoming a, uh, a Patreon member which you can find on my website, kentopson.com. And, or you can make a donation, a one-time donation, or many times if you want to. Thank you, those of you who said yes. So I'll say it again. If you want to support this podcast, you can easily do so on my website, kentopson.com. And I really appreciate it. It will help me keep making stuff like this and continue to try to create a dialogue around meaning, sacred texts, dreams, history, uh, nature, the soul, transcendence, all of my favorite things, a few of my favorite things. So yeah, thanks for really, uh, thank you for, for being a part of this. Let me, let me also add something else to the equation. If you are interested in doing an Israel trip, I'm just now getting around to planning my 2020 schedule. And I haven't put up any trips yet. I'll do that soon enough. So if you're just an individual, check my website. I'd love to have you come. My my trips are in the spirit of pilgrimage. It's a kind of spiritual adventure where, yeah, we do look at the Bible and archaeological sites and the story of Jesus, among others. That's my my what what would I say? That's kind of the hinge of my trips. And, uh, trips have a sort of a different focus, I suppose. That's kind of the hinge in mind. But along the way, there's culture, history, politics, art, architecture, um, 
whatever's going on for you. There's theology, and it's all part of this living conversation. That's how I think about pilgrimage, or at least group pilgrimage. It's a living, breathing conversation. And even after 17 years of doing these, something like that, um, I still find it rewarding and life-giving. So check my website for that. But that wasn't my main point. (laughs) My point was, most of my trips, there's some kind of core group, like a church, an organization, a school, a large family, a group of friends, and and then maybe some additional people that, that add on if there's room. And I'm throwing that out there. All my trips are word of mouth. So if you are a pastor, leader, teacher, educator, um, have a community of some sort that you think would benefit from a trip like this, please contact me, me through the website. And if you have 20-ish people, um, give or take, that is enough to make up a core group. And I would love to have you, you know, put together and plan a trip like this. And then there can be a relationship between my guiding and what I like to bring and, and sort of what your interests are. So if that's been stirring in you, I encourage you to do that. Uh, now more than ever, it's important to not only pay attention to the past and how we got here, but even to visit places like this in the world, which are a convergence of worldviews and ideas and religions and spiritualities and and to be a participant in that conversation. So if that interests you, please send me an email. And one more thing, if you are local to the, uh, I live in Michigan, local enough, I'm about to put some dates on the calendar for some of my retreats and programs. Once the weather turns nice, which it's now finally doing, even though it snowed this week, April is the cruelest month, says T.S. Eliot. Yeah, so I'm about to, for sure, release some day retreats. So Saturday from 9 to 3.30 in May, I'll have one, and um, also in June, and I'm working on some longer retreats. So if that interests you, if you want to do some nature-based stuff, uh, come find out what that is <laughs> without saying too much about it right now. Uh, check my check my website for details. Okay, let's talk about the last week of Jesus's life. And I want to begin by asking a question like this. How do we hold these? Or how do we listen? Maybe is even a better question. How do we listen to these stories? Some of some of them we've heard many times, or maybe you're not that religious or didn't grow up religious, and so it's all kind of new. In that sense, you have a great advantage. But how do we listen? Because as I was saying before, this isn't this season is not about remembering or repeating ourselves to death. It's much more something like, um, how should I put it? Something like what is happening? Not so much what happened, but what is happening? What's happening in my life? What's happening in the natural cycle? After all, Easter and Pesach or Passover always happen in the spring. So there's there's a dynamic happening on the earth itself, a reawakening, a reemergence, a resurrection happening with uh, plants and animals and flowers and trees and also of the human spirit and the human soul and we shift out of this winter mode into something else so there's a reason why it happens this time of year not other times of year so what is happening and I think an invitation to listen to the story with this question of mine is something like this what do I resonate with what am I hearing what characters bother me What characters do I find alluring? What situations ring my bell for one reason or another? And assume that something that is happening in the story is happening in me. That's, I think, the point of curiosity. That's the the mysterious exchange between my own spiritual life, growth development questions, and these ancient narratives, which are symbolic, metaphoric, um, archetypal. and, And that's where the that's where the magnetic pull is between what's happening in me. And I think you can sometimes be broader than that. What's happening in our culture or in my culture, our culture and, and, and what's happening in the story. Uh, 
and what's standing out now versus, you know, why is one thing standing out and not another? So I think that's a, a at least a, a helpful, really one-on-one way to, to talk about how to listen in the first place, because that, that must be what it's about. I mean, I'm, I'm so tired of conversations about, did it happen or did it not happen? Did Jesus literally resurrect from the dead or not? I'm not saying those are completely unimportant, because I suppose any question is worth wrestling with, and sort of the, the science and historicity of things is a at least personally, captured my attention for a long time. But once you conclude it happened or it didn't happen, what are you supposed to do with that? Like, oh, I believe that it happened or I believe that it didn't happen. Okay. And, you know, what 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 does that do for you or in you? How in that, how is that belief or non-belief working on you in any way most of the time at least in my view and and in my experience it's just more of a mental game it's more the project of the ego that likes to construct its world by what it thinks it believes even though any depth psychologist and freud and jung are screaming you don't even know what you believe no matter what you say you you you're only scratching the surface so let's not use that his the lens of history as the only lens through which we are listening to these stories let's go deeper after all we just you know human beings deserve more they're rich and, and complicated and nuanced and so are the narratives all right so enough uh, preaching along those lines let me make a quick comment about the big pattern the big pattern in the final week is descent and return, or death and resurrection, or a collapse of worldview and a down into the abyss of hopes, dreams, and aspirations, and some kind of emergence, some kind of surprising, novel emergence of something new. The pattern is one of transformation. Not only transformation in the person of Jesus and the story that he's been carrying, but I think the parallel track is what's happening in the disciples. After all, if it was just about what happened to Jesus, that would be like kind of the end of the story. If if the pattern of transformation isn't happening among his own followers, a collapse, a death, and a renewal, then the story is not going to live. We would never have heard of the Gospels or Paul, for that matter. And the reason why I, I, I want us, I don't know, just to think about the big pattern of um, death and renewal or birth, death and rebirth, something like that, is even according to Paul, who is the first uh, witness to well, I was about to say the first witness to Jesus. And what I what I mean by that is his writings are the oldest ones we have. He says in the mysterious ritual and rite of baptism, we experience, we, are, we die with Christ, so to speak. We're buried and we're resurrected. We come up out of the water. So this is Paul who had no access to the Gospels, never read a Gospel a day in his life because they weren't written. He never met Jesus personally. He met some of his followers, uh, some of the, the early disciples, had a kind of numinous, strange encounter with this Christ consciousness, with, with, with this living mystery on the road to Damascus. Um, it, in other words, had an experience himself and then began to talk about it. He's, he's the first one, and he already, in his brilliance, which, uh, you know, I almost hesitate to say because I know so many people don't like Paul, but in his brilliance, realizes the pattern isn't about what happened to Jesus. The pattern is about the possibility, the seed of transformation that may happen in us, which is exactly what Paul experienced. He was blinded by Jesus. That's 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 the story in, in, in Acts, something like, you know, scales, like the scales of a fish form over his eyes. And, and the symbol is being blind in how you thought the way, how you thought the world was only to have those scales come off 
and experience new vision and new life and a new way of seeing in the world, that's transformation. That's a symbol of transformation. So he's saying it is about what happens in people, not about worshiping what happened to, to the guy, to Jesus, so to speak. So anyway, I just think that's a, an interesting aside. And speaking of the pattern, what I've found helpful personally lately is to think about a cycle here. And the cycle is something like this, belief, faith, and experience. That one way of talking about transformation and change is to talk about belief, faith, and experience. And here's what I mean. Beliefs are what we hold about the world, what we're consciously aware of and think we think about the world. Those are our, our beliefs. And and there's nothing wrong with a belief. Of course, you, you can't function without at least certain rudimentary beliefs. And, and some of those come from authority figures and from religious institutions and dogmas and theologies, if you're religious, or more directly from your parents and the worldview that they uh, seem to embody and inhabit. And something like a construction, a loose construction of the world forms around your belief system. Except anyone worth their salt as a spiritual teacher will tell you beliefs have limitations. And the process is something like this. You come to the limits or the edges of your belief, the way you think the world is, and there's a kind of threshold that has to be crossed. Maybe at first you're in a kind of liminal in-between space, but something like a threshold is crossed from what you believe about the world toward the unknown. I would call that unknown faith. That's the beginning of faith to say either I'm letting go of, or most of the time it feels more like I'm robbed of my belief system, the way I thought the world is, or something of it doesn't really work for me anymore. It could be something like abstract, like, I used to think this about Jesus, and now I don't. I mean, that, that's a kind of uh, crossing. But it's much more like, I believe the world to be a certain way, and now I'm not so sure. What I would say is that's the beginning of faith. That's venturing into the unknown. And, and it's terrifying on one level. It's also freeing on another to be in this faith-like space. But what happens in the cauldron of faith or the cauldron of the unknown is you find yourself much more open to, the, to some sort of novel experience. Novel might not be the best word for it, for, but let's just call it experience. Something like an experience. You have an experience that sometimes is very subtle but surprising or sometimes rocks you to your core. That's a story of Paul. He's just minding his own business. He's walking along the road to Damascus, and he has this visionary encounter with this mysterious Christ consciousness or Christ figure and says, why are you persecuting me? And it rocks his life. It, it, um, on the level of the body, mind, soul, holistically, as an experience, which then turns the cycle around and reshapes the beliefs. Your experience begins to reshape how you construct the world until that no longer works and it cycle turns back around again. So belief, faith, experience. One time Carl Jung was asked, do you believe in God? He said, uh, I don't believe I know. That's someone who is speaking on the level of experience. He knows something. It's not a matter so much of his supposed beliefs. But anyway, something like that I think is important in naming because I see the same pattern happening in the last week of Jesus's life. Maybe it happens for Jesus, so that's a little bit mysterious. He believed that it was going to go down in a certain way, and he entered the cauldron of the unknown the last week, and the arrest, and the trial, and the crucifixion, and down into the underworld, only to emerge um, on the other side of such a thing. So you could say something like the pattern seems to exist with Jesus, but definitely also with the disciples. What they thought a Messiah was, whatever their expectations were for Jesus, or for being there as a little team, like go, go team disciple, 
as we're entering Jerusalem, that whole thing blows up in their face and their beliefs, especially for the prominent ones like Peter, just are completely obliterated. And in that sense, they're forced into the realm of faith, into the realm of the unknown and almost very cautiously and ambiguously putting one foot in front of the other and making loads of mistakes along the way until something of a new experience of this Christ begins to emerge in the resurrection uh, stories. I hope that I hope I'm making sense so far. So let's start by making, I don't know, a couple observations about the triumphal entry. I'm really going to talk about the triumphal entry, the Last Supper, and the arrest, and then make some comments about what I think is a, a very hard to trace thread storyline of Peter and what's happening with him in this uh, denial and then mention a few things about resurrection and sort of post-resurrection with, with Peter and see if we can't, um, I don't know, listen for some, some new and surprising things. So with the triumphal entry, this is uh, traditionally called Palm Sunday, which I'm making this on April 15. Tax day. Taxes enter into. Oh, I just thought of this. Oh, yes. Okay. Taxes enter into Jesus's last week here. I'll get to it. So Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem via the Mount of Olives, which is just a hill opposite of the temple. And he recapitulates or reenacts in, dra in dramatic fashion, I might add. He's a bit of a, um, <laughs> almost a drama queen. <laughs> he kind of is like in this moment in that he gets on a donkey and suddenly the crowd is sort of whipped up into a frenzy, a mob-like state, chanting, save us, save us, save us, Hosanna, waving palm branches. And maybe there's some, there's some longing or expectation to be freed from Rome. I might say more about that. I might not, but it's worth knowing if you don't. And what I mean by recapitulates is that he is enacting Zechariah chapter 9, I believe. This is a prophetic text that says your king will come to you gentle riding on a donkey. And it's a very long passage and worth reading yourself. One of the promises of this coming king-like figure who will ride on a donkey is that he will take away the war horses and chariots. So it's a direct promise in a way of peace that someday there'll be a king. He'll be riding on a donkey, not on a war horse. And in fact, he'll take away um, our lust and, and greed and, and attachment to, to violence and warfare. And we'll experience a peace that we have, we haven't experienced yet. So just for Jesus to say, Hey, go, go get me a donkey. Uh, and then get on it. The, it heightens the drama. So that's the entrance up over the Mount of Olives, looking over the city of Jerusalem. Jesus is on a donkey. Now, what's surprising about the story is that what you would expect to be the case is already disappointed right from the opening, right from the, the, the you know, curtain opens, act one is a kind of disappointment because maybe what I would expect to see is something like Jesus sort of like waving at people like the queen, like, Oh, you know, thank you. Thank you. And like pointing at people and giving the thumbs up and saying, Hey, yeah, appreciate that palm branches, you know, Hosanna or whatever, just, just enjoying and in a way embracing the, the praise that he's receiving. And I think it's not just for him, but it's maybe for the whole notion of, of messianic longing in the first place. It's instead, what, what's happening is that Jesus is weeping. What happens to him in that moment is that his heart breaks and he's crying on the back of this gentle donkey. The messianic figure is in tears. You know, what, what kind of image is this? And, and if I could maybe suggest a kind of archetype, there's a bit of the sacred fool dynamic here. It's not, um, what I mean by sacred fool is that sacred fool kind of trickster, almost idiot-like archetype that Jesus is looking foolish publicly 
by crying or weeping on the back of a donkey. Instead of sort of setting his course and saying, now I know what I'm doing and I'm announcing my, my place in the world and I'm going to set the world to rights, what happens is that his heart is broken. That's the first thing that happens to him. And if you ask, what is he crying about? You know, maybe on one level, and this is hinted at in the, in the text, especially in Luke, is that he realizes that the crowd there or the people there, probably even his own disciples, misunderstand the nature of what he's calling the kingdom. And maybe they misunderstand the kind of messianic figure he's learning to embody and embrace. It's not what people think. And he says as much because he says, if you would only know what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. And I tell you, there will come a day when your enemies will surround you and burn this place to the ground. And, you know, people have used that text to say, see, Jesus is predicting that the Romans are going to come and destroy Jerusalem, which they do. And maybe he is predicting, but... Maybe not so much in a magical sense, like I taught high school and I could say, I could sound like a prophet by saying to kids, you're not going to turn this in assignment in on time. Why? Because I've been watching you all semester. So there's a kind of Jesus can see maybe uh, behind the curtain of this um, mob-like scene and it breaks his heart. Which, if we think about Jesus as revealing something about the divine and the mystery of the divine, we might want to camp out for a while around this image because Jesus's response to ignorance is grief. Jesus's response to people missing the point, losing the plot, is tears. I mean, that, that challenges me even just saying it right now because my response to ignorance is, you're an idiot. You know, you're, you're ignorant. You don't know what you're talking about. Um, you're foolish. Or why don't you change your mind? Or whatever the case may be, Jesus' response is tears. And maybe we can even take it further because at the by the end of the week, when Jesus is on the cross, his response to ignorance is forgiveness. He looks at his own enemies and says, "Forgive them; they don't know what they're doing." So how's that for? an image of the divine. How's that for, how might the divine respond to our ignorance? Oh, I know, with grief and forgiveness. And you might want to ask yourself, where do I find myself in the story? Where do I find, do I find myself in a world filled with ignorance? Maybe my own ignorance or the ignorance of my friends and family and whatever. What's the invitation here? So a very, I think, complex and rich uh, sacred fool I think archetypal embodiment is happening here on the Mount of Olives so that's sort of stage one act one the next day is almost like a reversal maybe it goes from grief to anger here and and Jesus enters the temple and famously starts knocking over the tables and saying, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've turned into a den of robbers. Both of those are quotations from the Old Testament, from the prophets, actually, Isaiah and Jeremiah. So Jesus is sort of uh, at his most prophetic here. And I don't mean predicting the future. I mean doing public acts, almost being becoming like a public nuisance, which is what the prophets were in antiquity. God, I wish we had more prophets in our world. They were a public nuisance to the king and to the religious and political establishment. Like, like Isaiah walked around naked for three years in Jerusalem saying, this is how you appear before God. You know, Jeremiah says, oh, you come up to the temple and say, oh, the temple, the temple, the temple. How awesome. Meanwhile, you shed the blood of innocent people. You've turned this place into a den of robbers and God, God is going to come here and destroy you. This is Jeremiah chapter 7. So to turn over tables and quote the prophets is in a way, I think, Jesus symbolically destroying the temple. Turning over the tables and I guess turning over the temple and causing a major public scene and getting himself in real trouble. And I think I think historians like to say something like this, and I think they're right about this, and I mean historical critical scholarship that gets applied to the New Testament says something like this, uh, when 
The reason why Jesus is eventually arrested and handed over to the Roman authorities probably has something to do with this incident. I know he's put on trial for saying certain things, but that's all, I mean, the weeds are quite thick in there. What exactly is Jesus put on trial for? And there are actually two trials, and one is a Sanhedrin, and one is Pilate, and, and it's very convoluted in a way. And the sort of the 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 final thing is, all right, fine, he's a, he's a, a zealot type figure who's who's claiming to be a king and we only have one king but Caesar so that is worthy of crucifixion um, denying the the kingship of the emperor but before that it's all this uh, strange trial business but I think it's important to back up and say he gets himself into trouble by being a public nuisance and the people like it that's very obvious in the text they the uh, religious and political authorities are afraid to ar arrest Jesus because they're afraid of the people. He's won some fans here. They may have been confused in the opening scene. Why is this guy crying? The next day he's angry and is whipping up um, a frenzy here on the temple and shouting about the prophets and their and people like it there because all of us, I think on one level don't, like to be taken advantage of, especially in the religious and political mixture of things. Whenever religion is used for personal gain, which it is all the time, it doesn't sit right with us. And maybe Jesus is poking around in those, um, poking around in that beehive, so to speak. And people like it. And, and, but it's, it, in a way, this incident on the temple puts him on the cross from a historical point of view. It might even be fair to say that the confrontation with the temple is even richer symbolically. If you look at the Gospel of John, there's one story that puts Jesus in the temple where he stands up and says in a loud voice, uh, anyone who is thirsty, let him come to me, and streams of living water will flow from within. And John by far is the most symbolic of the uh, four Gospels, the most the most mythic, the most metaphoric, really, and maybe you could say the most mystical. And there's something about this living water, along with several other metaphors that Jesus uses, particularly in the Gospel of John, that makes Jesus a a troubling figure. He seems to be seeing saying something like the institutional path only takes you so far. And the kind of divine life that I am embodying and inviting you into is, maybe you could say, uh, is more democratic, is more available. It's available in the present moment. The thing that you're looking for out there, streams of living water from God or from the temple or from the priesthood or from the sacrificial system, actually dwell within and can flow from within. Or the spirit that you think maybe dwells inside a special room, inside a special box, is actually uh, dwelling in the inner rooms of your own being. And so Jesus is one of the many, I would say, speaking broadly speaking, uh, religious figures or spiritual teachers that say something like the divine is found within. And he's, in a way, so convinced of the availability of this God that he gets himself into trouble with the religious establishment. Which, what would you expect if you go around saying, all right, this is nice and all, but but it's window dressing. That, that the, you know, there is a container, there's a wine skin, but it's for the, but it's for the sake of the wine. And the wine can be consumed directly. That's sort of, uh, Jesus's, I think, more mystical subtext behind the uh, behind the figure of rabbi and teacher, caught up in um, a kind of cultural and social matrix. There's something. There's a mysterious stream flowing beneath that, and it has to do with where does the divine dwell? And let's let's take it all the way for a second and say, look at Jesus's most mystical lines, which he says, I and the Father are one. And then he says, I pray that they, I think meaning us or people, may be one as we are one. 
that the kind of unitive relationship with the the mystery of the universe is available to anyone now that will get you in trouble because you can't make an institutional religion out of it so jesus in the temple is much more than hey i'm kind of upset that there are some people exchanging money here you know or or they're not allowing you know people to pray in the way that you know they should or i think that's those are the surface um concerns anyway it sets jesus on a course for the end of the week and at this point i don't want to get into all of the many stories they're worth reading they're worth reading and rereading the different kinds of healings and teachings and parables that Jesus tells between the time he enters the city in Jerusalem and the time that he's arrested on uh, Friday and the time period of the Last Supper. There's a lot that takes place. But I want to I talk about the, the Last Supper for a minute. So um, why are people in Jerusalem in general? Well, they're there for the celebration of Passover, Pesach where you kill a lamb and you barbecue it in the temple and the priest gets some and you get some and you go back home and you, you have a meal. And it's, it is actually anachronistic and unfair to take later um, developments in Judaism around the Seder and say that's what Jesus was doing. I don't think that's what he was doing. No serious scholar thinks that's what he was doing. He was doing some kind of meal, for sure, without question. And that meal involved bread and wine. And typically a lamb, although that's not mentioned at all in in the story, but there's some kind of sacred home meal. But the very sophisticated and nuanced tradition of the satyrs, it develops probably after this time period. So be careful. You don't want to just steal from Judaism um, and just anachronistically place it on on the New Testament. In the story of Jesus. But nevertheless, he's there celebrating a meal. And the meal is interesting in and of itself because it's not just a meal. It's a meal that celebrates liberation. And the entire Passover ceremony and ritual celebrates liberation. Liberation from what? From slavery, from Egypt, from darkness, from, um, from captivity and blindness and working for the man. And it celebrates a liberation from that through the figure of Moses and the story of the Exodus. And it, 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 it's so ironic, I think, on one level. And also, um, it's like, a, it's like a, I don't know, it's like a, like a bonfire that has gasoline on it, but no match has been lit. And, and everybody's standing around the outside smoking cigarettes. Like, who's going to be the first to accidentally or maybe intentionally throw that cigarette bat onto the fire and the whole thing's going to light up? That's Jerusalem in the first century because now they're under Roman occupation and pressure. And they're not really an autonomous kingdom. And yeah, they have some freedoms and liberties, but it's up under the thumb of Rome. And once a year, they're getting together and celebrating their liberation from the oppressor. And so that's in the air. So they get together and they're celebrating the Last Supper and they have these... Jesus brings in these elements. He brings in bread and wine, which also the Dead Sea Scroll community was using for their sacred meals. He brings in bread and wine. And he, in a way, I think, and maybe some of this is later Christians sort of looking back on the story and supplying some of these details. We don't know. But he seems to be saying the heart of this movement is about a kind of table fellowship, a kind of camaraderie around a common table. Originally in early Christianity, communion or the Eucharist, bread and wine was called the love feast. There's a love feast that we are celebrated, that we celebrate together. And in one part, it's to remember our the figure of Jesus. But on a much deeper level, it it's symbolizing kind of consumption of something. The question is what? And here's where I think even real traditional Catholic theology has ha, hints around it something, that somehow the bread and the wine are transformed into the divine. And what we are actually consuming is the body and the blood of the divine, the body and the blood of Jesus. The availability of this mysterious wind, this mysterious 
living water, this mysterious bread, this mysterious wine into our bodies. In a way, every time it's celebrated, it says something like the divine life is something I consume and that lives in me. And it's not disconnected from from the natural world. It's as natural and as ordinary as eating a piece of bread and drink, and drinking a glass of wine. It's like Jesus in the Gospel of Thomas say, saying, uh, turn over a stone and I am there. That's how available this mysterious divine mystery is and how ordinary it is. And the juxtaposition is so mind-blowing in a way from from a lot of temple ritual, which I'm not against, and I don't think Jesus is really against either, where there's blood and sacrifice and candles and smoke and incense and pomp and circumstances, circumstance and, and uh, special robes and on and on and on to the, to the most elemental and simple um, uh, parts of a meal. Simple bread and wine, and that's it. And they center around this meal, and he says, I'm giving this to you as a, as a compass point, as a way of orienting toward this divine life, to remember how, how, I think that's the symbol, to remember how easy and ordinary it is to consume this divine life and to have it living in you. Uh, the same God that lives in me lives in you is, I think, the symbol of the open table here. Which, which actually reminds me of something that my friend Peter Rollins likes to say. He likes to say that Moses, for example, needed to experience the actuality of the burning bush in, a real, time, in real time, in a real place, fixed in a certain location in order to wake up to the reality that every bush is on fire, every tree is on fire, Every landscape, every mountain is on, is on fire with the divine life. It's saying something like, you are on holy ground. In other words, it's playing with the, the specifics of, of a holy site or a holy place and the particular in order to get to the universal. I don't think you can do an end around and just go straight for the universal. We're trying that with sort of, um, and I'm not anti this, but um, kind of, the, the intuition of pluralism, saying something like, hey, isn't, isn't God found in many places? Isn't the mystery all over the place? And the answer to that is yes, but how do you come to know the mystery? You come to know it in the specificity and the specifics of the particular. The scandal of the particular, as it's sometimes called. That might be uh, John of the Cross, I can't remember. The scandal of the particular, maybe it's um, Teresa of Avila. I'd have to look that up. You can look it up. So something like the scandal of the particular is happening in the bread and wine, saying in this particular place, in this particular meal, with this bread and this wine, and next week when you do it again, and in a month when you do it again, the particularity points to the universal. And, and the concentric rings like ripples in a pond start to... to um, ring out from the scandal of the particular. So I think that's the kind of ritual that Jesus is inviting his followers into. Now, right in the middle of this supper, or I should say not in the middle, at the end of this supper is the phrase I want to get to. And I'm laughing because it's like so strange and inexplicable. I have never, ever heard a sermon on this, ever. And even in commentaries, I mean, I don't read really commentaries anymore, but um, back when I used to, not that I'm above them, believe me, I need help too. Um, oftentimes it's just bypassed or it's, it's glossed over and not really picked up on. And, and, and of course, and by the way, I think maybe just a couple words about critical scholarship, because one of the things that the really critical scholarship does with the Gospels is try to determine sayings or phrases or scenes and scenarios that go back to the historical Jesus and ones that maybe um, were molded and shaped by later theology or later ideas or editors or writers. It's a worthwhile pursuit. It's an academic pursuit. It has its merit. Um, but I think what I 
one of the things that's worth saying is that critical scholars will, will come along and say, if there's a phrase that doesn't really seem to line up with traditional theology, then you can be pretty sure Jesus said it. <laughs> In other words, if it, if it like doesn't go down easily, it probably does go back to the historical Jesus. And this is one of them. So I'm going to read it to you. All right. Here's a little conversation between uh, Peter and Jesus. So it starts like this. Simon, Simon, Satan, this is the accuser, has asked to sift all of you as wheat. So talk about, again, the stripping away of beliefs and entering the unknown territory of faith. You're being sifted like wheat and the chaff is being blown away and what you thought was going to happen in the world and your hopes and aspirations are about to be sorely disappointed here. He says, but I prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. <laughs> that the, 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 the thing you're leaning toward, something just beyond your beliefs, will somehow still remain intact and you'll follow this this kind of uh, mysterious thread. That's a little bit of my interpretation. And when you have turned back, you will strengthen your brothers. And of course, we read these things after 2,000 years and we say, oh, Jesus is talking about G Peter's betrayal. Okay, fair enough. And then Peter says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. So I think Peter is starting to see the writing on the wall. This is the not the kind of messianic um, homecoming, perhaps he was hoping for, or anyone was hoping for, but he's like, I, I'm willing to go all the way. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. You will say you didn't know me. You, you've never heard of me. Of course, Peter thinks this is crazy. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Now he's going back in time. When I sent you out to talk about the kingdom of God, I said, don't bring anything with you. Don't bring an extra tunic. Don't bring a purse. Don't just stay wherever you stay. And if you're invited into a home, stay there. If not, he says, shake the dust from your feet. Leave the place behind. But you didn't lack anything. You just went out almost like St. Francis in a way, like no extra shoes just or no shoes at all in the case of St. Francis. Just go out simply and like a bird and trust that your heavenly father, so to speak, will feed you. That's the image. Anyway, they answer back, nothing. We lack nothing. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. Now, honestly, have you ever heard Jesus saying this? I mean, even if you're relatively familiar with the Gospels, is this like, oh yeah, we know Jesus. I remember that. You know, people are always talking about that. No, n hardly anybody ever brings this up. Jesus says, sell your cloak and buy a sword. And then he says, it is written. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you, that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. So Jesus has this sense that of my own story, my own fate, my own destiny, in a way is precedes me. And the aim of my life, like the old Greek notion of faith, it's coming to its fulfillment. Or the old Greek notion of, of kairos rather than chronos. Chronos is chronological time. Kairos is sort of ultimate time now being fulfilled. Jesus has this intuition and this sense. And the disciples say, See, Lord, here are two swords. And Jesus says, That's enough. Now tell me, honestly, what the hell does that mean? Go sell your cloak and buy a sword. And they said, we've got two. And Jesus says, that's enough. Well, that's enough. What? There's no emotion. You don't know if that's enough. I don't want any of that. Or you missed the point or, or that's enough. Yeah. Two swords will do. Or what is Jesus talking about? And why, why would you need a sword? What? And, and right away, I think 
I think it's always fair to start asking questions of what is the story and what is the context, but in this case, I think we're already down on the symbolic level. What is Jesus talking about? What's the symbol? Just like when he says you must be born again, we're not talking about the mechanics of do I need to enter my mother's womb a second time? That's, that's Nicodemus's question when he hears I must be born again. We're, we're down into the archetypal, the symbolic, and the metaphoric. What is Jesus talking about? Why would you need a sword? And interestingly enough, when Jesus is arrested, he's betrayed by Judas. He's arrested. And Peter takes a sword. So apparently he has one. He's one of the ones with a sword, or we can assume. And he cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. And in a way, again, with the historical background, he's saying you don't have the right to serve in the temple because it does say if you're a Levite or a priest and you're maimed, you can't enter the temple. You can't serve in the temple. So maybe he's cutting off that right. And this happened actually um, about a 250 years before Jesus. Two high priests, two rival priests were fighting for the position of the high priest and one cut the other's ear off. And again, they don't, they're not missing. It's not like the guy ducked. It's much more of an intentional act. And Jesus says to Peter, am I leading a rebellion? Put your sword away. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. So talk about being confusing. Go sell your possessions, sell your cloak, buy a sword. Peter uses the sword and he says, now, now put it away. This is not a rebellion. So why would you need a sword if it's not a rebellion? And, and I think that unresolved tension of what is the point of a sword is kind of what I, where I want to camp out for for a while. I want, and I'm really doing so in an inquisitive and in a curious way. In fact, I mean, what do you think? Why would Jesus say you need a sword and also say put it away? So you need a sword, but it needs to stay in its sheath, or you need a sword in case you'll use it. When will you use it? Do you need a sword because actually one day this will be a rebellion? And we'll have to kick out the Romans. I mean, do you take it down that path? Or you'll have to fight for your life? What, what is this? And the image of a warrior is the archetypal image, I think, associated with this sword. And oftentimes people do not think about Jesus as a warrior. But let's be absolutely clear about something. The name Yeshua is Joshua meaning Joshua from the Old Testament. Jesus is named after the major warrior figure in the entire Old Testament who takes the people from the wilderness wanderings into the promised land and into a campaign, a, uh, a, a campaign of warfare to settle into the land. That's what Joshua, uh, Joshua is known for. So to name your kid Joshua, and I know technically it means Yahweh saves. The question is, I mean, Yeshua means Yahweh saves. How does he save? Well, how did, how did Yahweh save through the figure of Joshua? It was through the sword. So this is no accident in my view that Jesus is bringing up the notion of the sword. And you must mix that idea, Yeshua, Joshua, the warrior, with the Messiah himself. The messianic ideal, because you can think about a king as a guy on a throne, but let's just be honest. The kings in the Old Testament were warrior kings, especially King David. He had so much blood on his hands that even God says, you have so much blood on your hands, you can't build my temple. Let's be clear about that. And David doesn't. He, he, he leaves the uh, building of the temple to his son Solomon because he has so much blood on his hands. He is that warrior king. And I know modern people are very uncomfortable with, with many of them are uncomfortable with the warrior-like image because um, it, it's been abused. Suddenly you start going in the direction of, of warfare and the slaying of enemies, and suddenly you're into a dark chapter of history that nobody wants to repeat. But to deny that the archetypal energies of the warrior to deny that they exist is to not face something deep about the human spirit and about human personhood. And here I think just a little bit of 
of the more Eastern notion of warrior, Buddhism, Zen, um, samurai, those kinds of images, I think, can, can help color, flesh out, and provide some nuance to exactly what kind of warrior we're talking about. Jesus seems to be seeing something like, you need a sword, and you need to keep this sword in its sheath. That is actually, I think, the richest form of that the warrior image can take. In other words, the warrior knows their capacity, knows their capacities for harm, knows their capacities for good, knows, knows the responsibility that comes with any form of power, because that's another way of seeing the sword, and how might that be wielded or used is the, is the ultimate question. And if Jesus is going to leave this thing in Peter's hands or in the hands of the disciples and the female disciples, let's be honest, Mary Magdalene is just as important a figure as Peter, bringing in a, a whole different set of arch archetypal richness with what she's embodying in the story. But to, to stick with Peter for a moment, if you're going to have any kind of leadership role, Peter, and you're going to walk into the fires of the next chapter of your life, you got to get honest about some things. So what might Jesus be saying kind of on, on a psychological level? What's the invitation here? I think in order for Peter to grow up out of his infantile, immature, and childish views of what a Messiah is, and if he's to grow up out of his own um, immature uh, uh, fires, he's got to face some things. And what are the things he has to face? I think he has to face his wild passion with statements like, I would die for you. What else do we know he has to face? He has to face the fact that that's only partially true. And he has the capacity to deny that he ever knew Jesus. So I, 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 we're hinting around at, at Peter's shadow or shadow-like qualities. Out of his mouth, he says, I'll die for you. And in his unconscious, in the repressed parts of his own psyche, he can't yet face that he has the capacity to say, I never knew this guy, and I'm definitely not a part of this movement. That's got to come out of hiding. I think um, he has to face his own capacities for violence. In other words, if you're going to carry a sword, Peter, you better know when to use it. And, and you know, a couple of hours later, he's swinging his sword around, causing suffering and cutting off the servant of the high priest's ear. Jesus heals him in the story, by the way, and says, basically, that's not, that's not the point, Peter. But unless he realizes that he has the capacity for that kind of violence, then he is an unintegrated and dangerous leader. I think oftentimes with warrior, we think we don't need a warrior. We need someone who, who's never touched a sword. I think the story is saying something very different, which is if you're going to walk into the fires and ambiguities of this life and do some good in the world, or to use Jesus' language, if you're going to embody the kingdom of God that looks out for the poor, the widow, the alien, and the orphan, and the oppressed, that's one level of the kingdom, that reverses the very notions of blessing and looks out for the poor, the meek, um, that turns the entire uh, framework of society on its head with phrases like um, those who are my followers visit the sick, those who are in prison, um, uh, and well, I can't think of the other ones right now. Um, you better believe that that kind of action in the world, that way of being in the world, requires every ounce of warrior-like energy to walk toward that, especially when the entire culture screams go in the opposite direction, towards self-preservation and power and prestige and possessions, not the test of a good society is how it treats the marginalized. That requires some deep-seated passion. In other words, warrior-like energy. So we think we think good leadership is someone who's who's never tasted uh, uh, their own capacities for violence and has never touched a sword. I think Jesus says, "I beg to differ." You have to know what's behind the curtain. You have to peel that sucker back through through trial, error, suffering, and tears, 
and see what you're really capable of because you'll never tap the, the passion that's obviously there. I'm willing to die for you unless you also tap the passion of your own capacities for denial and violence and suffering. Otherwise, you're going to go put it on everybody else and say they have the capacity, these capacities. I don't. I'm, I'm the righteous one here. Um, but I think that the invitation with Peter is, I like Robert Bly's phrase, to begin to eat bits of the shadow. To eat it like eating the Last Supper, like consuming the bread and white, and like consuming these elements. Yep, I'm not as enlightened as I thought I was. Yep, yep. I'm not as uh, saintly as I thought I was. Yep, yep. Jesus' message of nonviolence, which I played lip service to and went around preaching and talking about, actually, I have those violent capacities and I've acted on them. I've I've looked I've looked at the enemy and I realized it was a mirror. That's what Jesus is getting at. And that kind of person Jesus can work with. That kind of person can both have a sword and keep that sword in its sheath. That's the kind of warrior energy. And why am I going on and on about this warrior? Because because we live in in an age where where there's so many issues and problems in the world. There's so much complexity. There's so, there, there's so much suffering that any act toward, I want to do something about this, requires this kind of fierceness. Requires the kind of fierceness. But the invitation with the fierceness is to face it also in yourself. To not fool yourself. Otherwise, you end up as a kind of blind warrior going around cutting, around, cutting off someone's ear. So what else can we say about this? Let's let's. Uh, that's where I wanted to go with this with this with the last week was really toward the person of Peter because what happens after this is Peter denies Jesus three times, boom boom boom, which again go back to the belief faith experience. What Peter said he believes, he realizes is a bunch of bullshit, and finds himself in this strange liminal in-between world saying things and denying he denying he ever knew Jesus in a kind of utter act of humiliation so he denies Jesus three times and basically runs away and isn't around for the crucifixion he sort of flees the scene only upon the resurrection stories according to the gospel of John Jesus comes comes back to Peter and asks him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? It's almost like, it's almost saying something like the level to which you're willing to deny that you ever knew me is the level to which I will ask again, do you love me? If you can go down to the bottom of your own hell, Peter, I'll go down there with you and ask you again, do you love me? Because the question becomes, Love on the other side of the collapse of your belief system. What's that like? Love on the other side of the collapse of your worldview and the way you thought it was going to pan out. What's that like? That's the thing I think Jesus is, is poking around in. And then he says something very ambiguous. And I'll, uh, this podcast is getting a little long, a, a little long so I kind of want to try to land the plane here. Jesus says to Peter directly, when you were young, you went and did what you wanted which is, uh, you know, I've quoted from several times, but I, I can't say it enough. When you were young, you went and did what you wanted. You went wherever you wanted. You did what you wanted. But when you were old, you'll be led where you do not want to go. And I think Jesus is preparing the way for that kind of faith story. From, I thought I knew, and I did what I wanted, and I believed what I wanted to believe, toward being led. But I think Jesus wants um, Peter to be led into the future of the unknown, into faith, having um, looked hard in the mirror at his shadow-like capacities, his violence, his anger, his love, his fear, his denial, his pathos, his vitality, having looked in the mirror as much as possible and saying, you, you now know, Peter, better who you are. Now you can carry a sword. 
So who would have thought? Who would have thought that hidden in plain sight is a different kind of conversation with the final week of Jesus' life? So I'll ask what I asked at the beginning. What'd you hear? What stood out to you? What bothered you? What resonated with you? What did you find alluring? Where do you find yourself in the story? And if you have even a hint of where you find yourself in the story, the question is, what's the edge of that? I find myself in the story. I'm a little like this character, a little like this scenario. So what's right on the edge of that? And what I mean by the edge is the edge of your beliefs. And what would it look like to cross a bit of that threshold into the unknown? What is it that I don't know about myself? And how, how would that, to venture uh, into that territory, that terrain, how might that be an act of faith? What, what, kinda, what does faith look like in that respect? It's the kind of questions I think are hidden here in the final week of Jesus' life. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Peace.